The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful to see people come out on a Thursday night to, to sit together, to meditate together, and um, to practice the Dharma, to hear the Dharma. And tonight I'd like to talk about, I'd like to talk about Sangha. And that's a, uh, a Buddhist term, which probably most of you know, but um, if anyone doesn't know, Sangha is one of the, uh, triple, triple, it's a, there's the triple gem in Buddhism, and uh, the triple gem is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Sangha is the, the community uh, this community, IMC, is a Sangha. And in Buddhism, we talk about taking refuge in the Sangha. And so I've been really interested in exploring Sangha for a while, uh, what it is, what it means to me. And, and in preparing to, to talk about it more, and as, I, and as I've, I've investigated and studied it, I've I really looked into refuge, and as I said, we talk about taking refuge in the Triple Gem, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So I thought about refuge and, and, and what that is, what that, what that word means, uh, and, and what it means in, in Buddhist terms. And so refuge, uh, one way to see refuge as, uh, is, is as protection, as safety and security. And, um, and so I've been thinking about what do I take refuge in? What, what in my life have I taken refuge in? What do we take refuge in? And today I listened to the news a bit, and I haven't... I've been kind of shying away from the news for a while, um, listening to music more than the news, and uh, and thinking about refuge, this protection and this safety, and these things of the world that we can take refuge in, and certainly, um, you know, to look for refuge, for safety or protection in in the stock market. Um, there is no refuge or safety in there. Uh, and, and there's all the ways that we can, that we can take refuge in some things that are, that are really harmful and unwholesome. And we also take refuge in, in really beautiful, uh, beautiful, helpful, helpful things as well. And, and so, so we can take refuge in our families and in our friends and in our uh, spiritual practice. And we can take refuge um, in exercise and entertainment and TV and uh, in our own bodies. But, but if I take refuge, if I look for protection or safety in my, um, in my body, well, you know, my friend just had surgery today. She's, she's great, but... But uh, clearly the body breaks down. And so it's a funny thing to, to, look, to, look, to look at that. And, and something, something like my family, whom I love, and, and it's, you know, it's, there's, so much, there's so much there. There's so much nourishment. Um, but it's not always so. It's not always a place of safety and security. So it's an interesting exploration for me to, to look at that and what that means to take refuge. And then also just moment by moment, what am I taking refuge in? And the way that my mind um, can go off into stories and to the past and the future and taking refuge in that and rather than being right here. And what is right here? Uh, why is that a refuge in this moment that doesn't feel safe and we learn in meditation to come back to here, to right here in this moment, in this place, and in this body. And that's a, 
that's really so important uh, in what meditation practice teaches us is, is to come right here and find that safety and security right here. And yet the mind wants to wander, wants to go off into, into something else other than just right here. So it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing question. What am I taking refuge in in this moment? I, uh, I noticed yesterday, uh, last night, my, my, my car light, the inside light, uh, when I got in, it wasn't working. There was no light, and I was in a very dark place. And I just watched my mind say, oh, this shouldn't be this way. Like, like my car light shouldn't go out. And somehow um, I felt that. I felt that stress of that. And, and to take refuge in the certainty of my opening my car door and having the light go on is really, it's a setup for, for stress and suffering. And, and, you know, just to watch the mind do that little, it shouldn't be that way. So in Buddhism, uh, as I said, we take refuge in the triple gem, the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And, uh, and, I want to read something from Tanasaro Bhikkhu, Ajahn Jeff, we also know him as. He's a Buddhist scholar. He writes, One of the Buddha's central teachings is that the human life is fraught with dangers from greed, anger, and delusion. And so the concept of refuge is central to the path of practice and that the practice is aimed at gaining release from those dangers. Because the mind is the source both of those dangers and of release, there is a need for two levels of refuge. External refuges, which provide models and guidelines so that we can identify which qualities in the mind lead to danger and which to release. And internal refuges, for example, the qualities leading to release in our own mind in imitation of our external models. The internal level is where true refuge is found. So there's the internal refuge and the external refuge. And the Sangha, the community, is a beautiful place to find that external refuge. When we practice With a Sangha, we can practice coming together and exploring and learning about the Buddhist teachings. And we can, we can mirror for each other how it is to be in the world and to try to practice the, tr- the precepts. And so that is a really wholesome external refuge. And in Buddhism, we learn to replace that which is unwholesome with that which is wholesome. So taking refuge in the Sangha is something wholesome that we can begin to rely on as we work in our practice to build that internal refuge, that refuge which is the true refuge inside of us. And in this practice, we are building that internal refuge. When we take refuge in the triple gem, we take refuge in the Buddha. And there is the historical Buddha from 2,500 years ago. Uh, and I'm sh- I would imagine that you, that you all know um, the beautiful story of the Buddha uh, and how he came to sit on the night of his awakening and, uh, and was bombarded by, by really his own mind in the form of, uh, of Mara who told him, you can't do this. You can't sit here. You're not going to wake up. And, and just, just bombarded him with desires and distractions. And that's our thinking mind. And then the Buddha put his hand on the earth and said, I deserve, I deserve to wake up. 
You can throw all you want at me, but I am here and I will sit until I am free and just really, really held the earth in that way. So there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful uh, story and, and inspiration of the historical Buddha. But when we're taking refuge in the Buddha, we're really taking refuge in the fact of his awakening, that this human being living over 2,500 years ago woke up, that, that liberated his heart and his mind from suffering, from pain, from stress, that he opened up this path and that it is possible. So we, we take refuge in the fact of the Buddha's awakening. And we take refuge in the Dhamma. We take refuge in the path of practice. It's a map showing how to take the external refuges and make them internal. So it's a way to do it. It's the path to awakening. The teachings of the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, and how to take those teachings and, um, and this, this map and bring it inside of us to build that internal refuge. And as we build this internal refuge, we're really connecting with the wholesome aspects of our heart that are here but are obscured by um, by the stories and our habits and our tendencies that in our life may have served us. We may have needed them. And they arise out of the conditions of our life and the life around us of the world. And in our, in our life from childhood on, in some way, they may have served us initially, but we have grown to rely on them. And as we practice and we build this internal refuge, we can begin to see that there's a way that we can rest and not react with our habits and with our tendencies, but instead allow ourselves to be less afraid and to connect with those wholesome aspects of our heart. It's not so scary to do that. And when we connect with what's true in our heart, we're less isolated. And the barriers and the boundaries that separate me really from myself, from my true self, and separate me from all of you and the world, those boundaries become less real. And still keeping that building of the internal refuge. So we can begin to take refuge in our own intentions, our own good intentions. We can begin to see our intentions more clearly as we practice. And um, our intentions are similar to our motives. And uh, I, I heard a teacher once, once talk about intentions and motives, and he said, um, if it wasn't for mixed motives, I'd have no motives at all. And uh, it's true. Um, as we begin to really explore and investigate our motives and our intentions, you know, it's, it's, there's so much potential for purity there and, and, um, and good intentions and wholesome intentions and intentions that can free us and help us to connect with each other. But, you know, it's I just come in. This, this, uh, those habits and tendencies come in. And, um, and snag on to those good intentions and uh, tell me I need something out of this or I'm not quite safe, that I need something else, I need a, another refuge, I need more of the external. Um, I need something else, I need more. But we can begin to see that and we can say, oh, okay, you know, I hear you, I hear you, I see you, 
it's okay, you're okay, I, you know, you can, you can be, you can, you're safe, I'm safe, Kathy, I can, um, I can rest in the safety of the building of the internal refuge and not go there so much, not go to that place of habit so much. And that's really freedom. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Sangha, the refuge of Sangha, the community. And this is um, also from Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He talks about the Sangha and the, the conventional Sangha and the ideal Sangha. He says, in its ideal sense, the Sangha consists of all people, lay or ordained, who have practiced the Dhamma to the point of gaining at least a glimpse of the deathless. And that's, um, that's kind of a, um, this amazing word that, um, the word I would use for that is um, to the point of gaining at least a glimpse of freedom. That's, that's another word that I would use for that. And then there is the, the conventional Sangha, and that's the community of ordained monks and nuns. So when taking refuge in the external Sangha, one takes re- refuge in both senses of the Sangha, the ideal and the conventional. But the two senses provide different levels of refuge. The conventional Sangha has helped keep the teaching alive for more than 2,500 years. So that conventional Sangha, the ordained monks and nuns, and and lay teachers as well. And without them, we would never have learned what the Buddha taught. However, not all members of the conventional Sangha are reliable models of behavior. So when looking to guidance in the conduct of our lives, we must look to the living and recorded examples provided by the ideal Sangha. Without their example, we would not know, one, that awakening is available to all and not just to the Buddha, and two, how awakening expresses itself in real life. So this is the this is the Theravadan uh, model of um, sangha and of awakening, and in the, in, the, in the Theravadan model of awakening, um, in the ideal sangha, when one has that glimpse, that taste of freedom, of the deathless. Um, Coming from the time of the Buddha, there was a term. The Buddha, the Buddha had this beautiful sangha of monks and nuns and lay people as well. And as it says here, uh, they um, it didn't it didn't it, it could be either. It didn't it didn't have to be monks or nuns. It could be lay people as well. And in the time of the Buddha, it was a time of um, of a real a real class existed in India at that time. And still does, but um, but the but the Buddha uh, said that whoever comes into the sangha, it doesn't matter what class they're from. Anyone can be free. Anyone can come into the sangha and practice, meditate, and practice, and hear the Dharma. And so the term used for. Um, for the aristocracy at that time was called Arya. And that meant noble. And what the Buddha said was that one who tastes freedom, one who comes into the path of practice, is an Arya, is a noble one. That's what makes a person noble, is one who comes into the path of the Dhamma. 
So it was really uh, radical for the times because he used a term that was, uh, in fact, was in fact for the aristocracy, the noble ones. It's a beautiful term, the 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 noble ones, for um, for one who commits himself fully to the path of practice, who has complete faith in the path of the Dhamma. And this is the Theravadan uh, model, which this center, Insight Meditation Center, is um, it's a, it's a Theravadan center. And you know, it's this, looking at the Sangha as well, here we are, this is the, the community, uh, and we come together. And um, it's a community. There's, there's, there's all sorts of, it's just an, an ordinary gathering of people who are coming together, and um, IMC has potlucks, and I think there's movie nights, and there's all sorts of things going on here. It's a very busy calendar. It's beautiful what goes on at IMC. And, um, and just like community in all sorts of other places, and churches and, and gatherings, gatherings everywhere. But uh, not to underestimate what brought you in the door. And maybe, maybe you're not even sure what brought you in the door. Um, but, you know, people meditate here. People sit still. And people talk about um, the, the teachings of the Buddha. And there's a Buddha. And, uh, and people talk about freedom and waking up. And so... Even if you're just checking it out, there's still that, that intention to come together and to sit still and investigate our hearts and minds. And, and that's a beautiful intention that we do together as a Sangha. And, and here we are and we can mirror for each other what practice can look like and what... Um, what what it's like to be a human with our suffering and with our joy and our experiences of freedom. And we can come together and support each other for that. As was said in the announcements, I have done uh, a lot of retreat practice over, over these years. And, and I did practice at Spirit Rock and um, sat, have sat a lot of long retreats and, and, and really devoted my life fully. I took a break from teaching and devoted my life fully to, to Dharma practice and, um, and to retreats and simplified my life and, and my daughter was grown and I uh, put everything in storage and, and winnowed everything down to a really small storage unit and and it was beautiful. It was beautiful to be able to do all this retreat practice, months of retreat. And, uh, and I loved just to sit. I loved to sit uh, by myself in the, in the woods or in my room and, and just sit. And um, so on the suggestion of my teacher, I went to England to a, to a center called Gaia House in Devon, England. And I had a lot of expectations going there. And, and I was going to go there to do, a, to, a, to do a specific practice. It was me, the practitioner, going in there, and I was going to do this, this uh, deep concentration practice for months. And so... I, as a meditator, had a lot of ex- expectations about what this might look like. And, um, and my teacher was uh, Christina Feldman, if anyone has heard of Christina. She's one of the founding teachers of Gaia House. And, and she would ask me, uh, she would say, so any hindrances arising? Are you, are you experiencing any hindrances? And... In Dharma practice, there's five, there's, there's, it's taught there's five hindrances that can arise that can, well, that can hinder our practice. And I would say, mm, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not experiencing any hindrances. And, and then 
she might ask me again. And then I, I realized that um, I realized that I was I was like pushing away my experience and that and that I wasn't allowing the truth of what was happening to me on this retreat where I was trying to be this practitioner doing this really heavy practice and that there was so many hindrances and that I was suffering I was in pain I was in so much pain and stress and I was in my room and I was sitting for hours at a time and just coming out for meals and um, and something broke through with that with my seeing my own pain and my own um, my own need um, to have my practice look a certain way. Kathy, the Kathy, the practitioner, was was in there and um, and not allowing not allowing my full self to to enter into this practice. And um, so that broke through, and I experienced really deep caring for myself, compassion. The word I used at the time was love. I experienced just love for myself and I, I would do walking meditation where you walk um, back and forth uh, and I would do walking meditation for for hours and days and just telling myself just touching myself and saying I love you I love you I love you it's okay I love you and um, So this internal refuge opened up in me of caring, of love, of compassion that, uh, that hadn't been able to fully blossom before because there was so much of me, the practitioner, doing this practice. And in a guy house as well, I heard um, for the first time in... Um, in any in any great extent, um, I heard through tapes, uh, Zen teachings, Mahayana teachings, and most specifically Zen teachings, and I heard some teachers from Zen Center, uh, Green Gulch Farms, um, who who one of the teachers, Rev Anderson, does retreats at Gaia House. So I fell in love with these teachings, and and coming out of that long period of practice at Gaia House. What I knew was that I uh, that I wanted to go to Zen Center and Green Gulch Farms and hear this teacher, and I also knew that I needed sangha, that I needed community, that uh, I knew how to sit by myself for long periods of time, but what about practicing in relation? in relationship with you, with others, with the world. I had been avoiding that. I had been avoiding uh, relationship. Not seeing that everything is relationship. Not seeing that anything I do is relationship. The relationship with myself, I in fact was avoiding as well. So, um, so I knew I wanted a sangha. I knew I wanted a sitting group, that, that a smaller sitting group, uh, rather than, than I wasn't really going out to Spirit Rock for any, for any um, of the public programs, and I wasn't part of a sangha. So, uh, so I, I did go out to Green Gulch and started connecting with the community out there, and I, uh, I became part of a, a sangha. Um, which met every Monday night in San Rafael. And the uh, founding teacher is uh, Miogen, Steve Stuckey. Uh, and they'd been meeting as a group for, gosh, like 18 years, I think, now. And, and these are old Zen students, and, and some of them were students of Suzuki Roshi. So I just, I just th- threw myself into, um, entered fully into this practice, this Zen practice. And... Um, and the community, the sangha, and I love—I just—I love, I just, I love uh, one of the one of the expressions in Zen is uh, called rubbing stones, and um, 
And it's about everyone is this stone and, and we're thrown together in the tumbler. And it's a very active process, this rubbing stones. That's the practice. And, and we tumble and we push against each other and all our, all our habit patterns and our, our various psychologies push against each other and rub against each other. And in this process of rubbing stones, uh, and imagine stones that are maybe kind of jagged and like, like newer stones with, with lots of edges. And in the tumbler, they begin to soften and the edges soften. So when we, in relationship, rub against each other, our edges begin to soften and we can meet each other more fully in a softer way. So I really loved this about uh, the practice. Um, this emphasis on waking up together is so important in Zen practice. And the emphasis on the Sangha. And it's, you know, it's, it's if you know the Bodhisattva vow, that it's the vow to, um, to awaken with all beings, to save all beings. Um, that our practice is for the benefit of all beings. Um, this, is, this is very intentional in Zen practice. Uh, it's not that it's not in the Theravadan practice, but in the Mahayana and in the Zen practice, it's, it's really it's, it's expressed very intentionally in the, in the vow, in the Bodhisattva vow. And so the community really lives together. There's the, the monastery, Green Gulch and the Zen centers are monasteries and people are thrown together. And, uh, and Sanghas aren't ideal, whether it's, whether it's Zen, uh, Mahayana or, or the Theravadan communities. I mean, stuff happens at Spirit Rock, stuff happens at IMC, I'm sure. It's just we're people, we're people brought together. But, but um, we also have that intention to wake up together. And... Uh, so in Zen, in, in the Zen practice, uh, one of the things that is talked about is living with your teacher, that that's really, uh, the teachings are expressed in, in day-to-day life by living with your teacher and getting to know your teacher. And in fact, perhaps not even asking someone to be your teacher till you've lived with them, to see how they live their life, to see how they eat. Everyone eats together and... and um, and to learn about practice in that way. And I think that's really beautiful to do that, to, to, uh, to see practice expressed fully just in day-to-day life. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's in those way when we cook together and we, 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 we garden together and we clean together, um, that just our natural selves arise, who we are arise, and, and that's where those edges can um, just butt up against each other and you know coming back to mindfulness and here and and seeing um seeing yourself in others over and over and over again and uh and having that commitment to each other to help each other wake up uh gil gil fronsdell the the teacher here one of the teachers here he, I've heard him say that uh, he began in Zen practice. And he said that when he came to the monastery, to the Zen monastery, that it was um, the first time that people did not, I can't remember the word to use, but it's like co or, or, or um, help him build his sense of self, that, that they weren't, they weren't help. They weren't feeding into his sense of self, and um, and that that was that was a bit like somewhat of imbalancing to. And you're thrown off. You're thrown off guard when when um, when someone else isn't isn't just buying into your story because it's the easiest thing to do to buy into someone else's story. It's like okay, yeah, you know, it's. It's, uh, it's like with, with, my, with my friends, my Dharma sisters, my closest friends, where um, we can wear different hats. And certainly 
we may wear the hat of the best friend where it's like, yeah, you know, your boss is a jerk and, and you should just tell them this and, and you're so right in feeling that way and, and, um, and, and they did you wrong. So that's like the best friend. Um, and let's go out and, and, you know, and run it off or whatever. But then there's the, um, the practitioner, the one who is no matter what, with real loving kindness and caring wants to help you, me, wake up, who will say, um, hmm, how's your heart in all this? Like, yeah, this happened with your boss. You had this experience. And how's your heart? And, and um, what was your part? Where were you perhaps delusional or where were you caught? And so these, these hats that we can wear with our, with our Dharma friends, with members of the Sangha, and, and, and both are appropriate. And sometimes I need that best friend who just says, yeah, the boss was a jerk, but we both know um, that those are words. Those are convenient words at times. If anyone has ever seen uh, a Zen priest ordained uh, in the monastery, this beautiful thing happens where there's va- many vows taken and, uh, and many times going up to the teacher and receiving bowls and receiving bowing cloths and receiving robes. And, uh, and when they receive their robe, their okesa, and, and come back and then they come back to their cushion and very, very, very much with ritual and ceremony, they put it on and, um, and to adjust it. And then, like, the priests behind, will come from behind them, and they'll all come up. And they'll come up, and they'll help them adjust the robe, and they'll pull it just so. And it's really sweet and beautiful to watch uh, in the monastery, people supporting and helping each other. So I've spent um, time at Green Gulch, and I've spent time at... Uh, Russian River Zendo, which is up in Guerneville. Um, and if any of you have ever heard of Darlene Cohen, who recently passed away and uh, was one of my teachers in the training program that I'm in. And uh, she was a beautiful teacher coming out of Zen Center. And she, she and her husband, Tony, were the teachers of the Russian River Zendo. And uh, Darlene talked about... Um, well, her practice has been for many years, many, many years. Her practice was um, working with pain, and she had groups called Suffering and Delight. And that was her teacher, her biggest teacher was her, her, um, her physical pain. And, uh, and she wrote some books, and she received some recognition uh, through this. And, and she talked about being in, in a limousine in New York for a book, for a book, uh, um, book tour. And she was in a limousine on to the next place. And she had this realization. She said that uh, she didn't want to do this, that actually what she wanted to do is she wanted to live with her students. And so she made that choice then to go back um, and live and stay at Russian River Zendo and uh, have her students come in and, and they would live there and sleep in the Zendo and 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 live together. And this is very much part of the Zen tradition. One time when I went uh, to the Zendo for uh, the Saturday morning program, and, and the sitting had just begun, and it was about five minutes in, and um, it was very still. It's a small Zendo. A small, the Zendo is like the Dharma Hall. And... Um, and it was very still. And Tony, Darlene's husband, was, was sitting near the door. And someone came in at that point. And they came in late. And, um, and Tony got up. And in the stillness and in the silence, he said, It's okay to be late. And I just took in this deep, deep compassion in the most simple words, such teaching of compassion that it's okay 
to be late. So, um, all these beautiful, beautiful uh, experiences of Sangha that I've been able to have, I'm so grateful for. And when I, when I travel to, in, in, my, in my years of practice, when I travel to the Sangha, uh, whether I, I've spent some time in Oregon in a, a, Zen, a Zen monastery and um, in the Russian River Zendo, and as I turn off the main highway and turn on to like the, the, the roads, the two-lane roads to the Sanghas or out down to Green Gulch or turn off the road um, onto Spirit Rock, into Spirit Rock, I just experience such a fierce joy of entering into the community. That's the only, only words I can use to describe it. It's just joy of entering into the land and, and experiencing the smell and the sights and knowing I'm entering into this community, into the Sangha of practitioners. And so here you are at IMC, and, uh, and this is a Sangha as well. And, uh, and a beautiful Sangha, the intention here of the practice and the retreat center is, is underway, uh, which, is, which is great. And I've done, um, I've done some retreats at Hidden Villa um, through IMC and definitely have been the recipient of the generosity that comes through IMC over the years. Um, and so... It's nothing, it's nothing lofty. Uh, it's nothing lofty or out of reach somehow to be part of a community of practitioners and, and um, come together to explore the Dharma. And as I said, you might just be here to check it out. You might be here your first couple of times or or new to practice, or new to meditation. Um, but just these moments, these moments when we sat together, and, um, and you came back to here, and you came back to your body, and you came back to your breath. And when I came back to my body and breath, um, we're building that internal refuge, uh, which is the true refuge. Which allows us to be um, fully present for the world outside of us and the world coming through us. And so it's, it's, it's not to be taken lightly and it's okay to hold it lightly, too. My teacher, Darlene, who passed away, Darlene Cohen, um, one of the, I think it was the last, the very last time I met with her when she was, she was dying of cancer, and uh, we were talking about my um, my daughter and um, my my granddaughter, who was yet to be born, and and we were talking about how wonderful grandchildren are, and um, and then she she said, and she just got really still, and she said, um, grandchildren are wonderful, uh, you know, all these things are so wonderful, and they're 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 comforts, they're enormous comforts, she said, but they're not a refuge. That they're not a refuge. The only refuge is the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. Those are your only refuge. And uh, the last thing is the last teaching of the Buddha, which some of you may know, um, it's in the Maha Parinibbana Sutta. And uh, the Buddha died when, I think he was 80. And 
and he was sick and he was ready to die and his attendant was named Ananda a devoted attendant for many 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 years one of his disciples and um, and so the Buddha was dying close to death and Ananda said to him um, what are we going to do without you what are we going to do without our teacher um, who's going to teach us how are we going to learn the good Dhamma and uh, the Buddha said to Ananda he said be a lamp unto yourself that you are we are I am the Dhamma I am the light I am the Dhamma be a lamp unto myself that internal refuge that is supported and grown with each other in the Sangha in the external refuge so may you all find that internal refuge inside of you as you practice and grow in the Dhamma and may you be supported by each other in the Sangha I'm really happy to have been here with you tonight thank you there's uh, a couple of minutes left if anyone has any questions or comments or anything. Hi. Would you briefly go over the five distractions? The hindrances? The hindrances. Oh, briefly. <laughs> uh-huh. um, well, I can tell you briefly um, the five hindrances the, the hin- that, hinders, that hinders our practice, but also um, we can wake up through practicing with them and and seeing them um, anything is uh, anything is material for waking up all things including the hindrances it's a lot to be learned um, the first hindrance is, is desire wanting um, the second hindrance is aversion not liking not wanting and the third hindrance is called um, classically it's called sloth and torpor um, so sleepiness as opposed to uh, tired because we can get tired but it's a sleepiness it's a dreamy fantasy taking refuge in um, that sleepy state it can be pleasant the fourth hindrance is uh, is restlessness and there's another good word to describe it I can't remember but the agitated mind the mind that won't um, that won't um, stop or slow down and it can be expressed in the body as well and then the fifth hindrance the last hindrance is doubt Mm. doubt in ourselves our ability to practice doubt that this uh, that this is going to work at all that this is really something that is going to um, help us that's sort of a short a short answer there's a lot there thanks for the question Say that I, I uh, agree with your metaphor of the how did you call it the stones, the polished stones? Um, rubbing stones. Rubbing stones. 
that's what I called it. Polishing stones, yeah. I agree with that in the sense that, you know, it is interesting if, if, if you took a group of five human beings and did do a little Tumblr kind of thing, our personalities really do have edges and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the techniques and method allows us to rub those things away from our ego, you know. In fact, the, the word that I thought of least it sounded was the word haven. That, you know, haven, being, a, being an estuary, place of safety, mm-hmm. place of support and compassion and non-critical judgment, leniency, in fact, just leniency. Leniency, I like that word. Yeah, yeah. Allowing. Yes, leniency. So, you know, I, I appreciate your metaphor of the stones rubbing stones, it makes sense to me as a child uh, in San Francisco. I, I, I never had one, but I always wanted a rock. <laughs> I think every little eight or nine-year-old boy, you know, Senator here, we all probably at one point around there, this little thing like a little coffee can, and you put stones in it and turn it loose for yeah. hours. Yeah. A simple child's metaphor. So, um, you know, but you're right, that, that, that rubbing business, and as it takes away the edges, and I think about even in the, my own issues of conflict with myself and others when we're in a group, for example. Like the, the rubber stones is an alternative to the idea that we can rub away those edges. Mm-hmm. And find ourselves in a simpler way, you know, cleaner, simpler, mm-hmm. polished, you know, more civil way, more civil way. So, uh, I guess, it, you know, I guess you touched on the stock market and have been watching the news today, but certainly that, you know, this this kind of I guess there's a rubbing going on there too, but it seems to lack a lubricant or something because there's an awful lot of edginess. <laughs> so I appreciate the uh, rubbing stones tonight. Mm-hmm. It's general. Knocking off a few edges. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a great mitzvah. It's, it's a great blessing. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Is your grandchild born yet? She is. She's four months old. Welcome, Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Thank you, everybody. It's been, it's been lovely sitting and practicing with you this evening. Take good care. Travel safely.